and there's this view of Lake Atalan down below, the little towns, and there's three volcanoes dotting uh, the landscape around the lake, which is, the lake is crystal blue. And I just, I screamed, I was, I was like, holy, like, screamed. The beauty of it was so unexpected and so insane. Episode 270, a five-year walk around the world with Tom Tursage. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Today I have Michelle Shea back with us again, and I I know that you've really enjoyed her on the previous episodes where she has offered wonderful adventure dining tips and tricks, teaching us how to eat better in the backcountry, which is something that I'm really looking forward to in this summer adventure season. So, Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me back. So, Michelle, you have a tip for us today about high-altitude cooking. So first, why does this matter? What's the deal with high-altitude cooking? This is something I get a lot of questions about, so I just wanted to address it because once you get above 10,000 feet, your environment changes drastically. You don't have as many water resources, you're more susceptible to wind, to cold, and it takes a lot longer for water to come to a boil, which of course uses more fuel. So these are all really important things that you need to take into consideration because if you're relying on foods that take a long time to heat up and cook, it's might not be successful. So just be conscious. And these are a few things I just wanted to go over with you guys today. Okay. Well, how do we cook at altitude then? So the most important thing, again, is to be conscious of your water sources. So you need to know how much you use and how to repurpose that water. So if you're above a water source, cook with something that doesn't need as much water. So pre-cooked ingredients are great. Sausages, salamis, pre-cooked rices, things that you can heat without cooking. And that's kind of your key to this whole thing is bring foods that you can heat, but not have to waste a lot of fuel or time to cook. And um, no cook's also a great option if you want to bring things like sandwiches, pitas, foods that are easy to roll up and you can eat, but you don't have to, again, sit and go through the whole cooking process. Um, Again, just you need to be a little bit more conscious too of your body's reaction to altitude because you're burning a lot of calories up there. Um, you're trying to stay warm. So you need foods that are easy to digest and that have a lot of high calories. So it's something that your body can get quick energy from and you're not having this big lump of food sit inside of you that's going to take forever to get through. Um, and the third one is just, you know, really need to be conscious of your appetite. A lot of people tend to lose their appetite at high altitudes. So again, you know, things that are quick and easy to digest, but foods like ginger. Ginger really helps your digestive system. Mint's really good. You know, little things that if you have a tea or a light flavor, it can really help your body kick into that digestion mode and that'll help you get the most out of what you're eating. Very cool. So I think the main thing here is for people to be aware that if you're planning a trip to higher altitude and you've not done it before, you might find that things are different up there. Like Michelle's saying, uh, water boils at a lot lower temperature, so it doesn't cook as quickly. Your water sources may be more limited, so you have to know where you're going and if you're going to have that water. And one thing for sh- for sure, Michelle, is at altitude, our bodies need more water. We just go through water really fast. Yeah, yep. 
So just be safe up there. And I know everybody has their own style of cooking and, you know, high alpinists really focus on different type of diets. So, you know, there's a lot of resources online, uh, visit adventuredininguide.com. I've got some great posts about high alpine eating and I've worked with some great high alpine al- athletes that really know how their diets and their bodies react in these environments. So enjoy these tips and I hope you have some safe travels and get some fun adventures in there. Right on. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you guys. Happy trails. Today, I have Tom Tursich with us, and Tom is doing something I think a lot of people dream about, but very few people actually pull it together enough to try to do it, and I love his story. Tom is walking around the planet. He is working toward walking on all seven continents over five years, and he's been on the road now walking for two years. And he is here to tell us about what life on the road is like and what it's like to walk around the planet. I am really excited about this episode. So Tom started out in New Jersey. He's been walking for two years, like I said, and now he is back in New Jersey temporarily. And I'm glad he is so we could catch up with him. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Kurt, and perfect pronunciation on the last name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had some coaching. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah. Well done. That's awesome. So... Tom, on your website, it, it, which, it, by the way, by the way, everyone, his website is theworldwalk.com. And so you can look at pictures while you're listening to the show if you're, if you're on your computer and uh, see what he's got going on there, which might, might be kind of fun. But it says it was April 2nd, 2015. You left your home in New Jersey, and you said the dream of walking around the world formed when you were 17, and your friend Anne-Marie passed. And yep. man, it, that hits me in two places. One is my wife's name is Anne Marie, so you know that's wow. that's kind of a strange coincidence. But the other thing is that the the loss of a friend is a, a life changing event. So tell us about that. How did that kick you out the door? Yeah, um, so Anne Marie was a, a good friend. There was probably about seven of us, uh, four guys and three girls, and uh, we were pretty good friends. And uh, she was just in this bizarre freak jet ski accident. Uh, so it was in the middle of summer and totally unexpected. You know, she was only 16. Mm. And it was for me, who was 17 and I'm a young kid, I'm in college I, or I'm in high school. And uh, I never had any close experience with death. And up until that point, you know, life is kind of bubbly and you're, I was playing tennis and uh, I was in theater and uh, playing soccer and everything is just going as it should and going to go to college. And, you know, I'm living this very privileged, um, nice life. And then uh, when she died, it kind of shook, uh, shook my philosophy, shook my like well-being to the core. And I remember being uh, on the front yard of my neighbor's house, uh, who was very good friends with Shannon too. And we we're all sitting there and everyone's crying and, and I wasn't crying, but I just felt very strange from everything, like separated. Mm-hmm. And then I went back into my house and I laid in bed for like two hours and just stared at the ceiling. And it was really just really like experiencing death. Before that, I knew about it intellectually you know people die people die in movies and it's just a thing that happens uh but to have one of your friends taken away 
and at such a like a ripe age of 17, um, it had like a prime impact on me. And from that point on, uh, for about a month or two, uh, I was really in a fog about how to deal with this new fact that I wasn't immortal and I wasn't invincible. And I remember the days just kind of bleeding into one another and just going through the motions. And I was in a speech and communications class in high school and someone put on a clip of Dead Poets Society. Hmm. And that's all Carpe Diem sees the day. And but that really fit for where I was at in my life. And I took hold of that. And with that philosophy kind of as the foundation, knowing that at some point I have a very finite period of time on Earth uh, being alive. uh, At some point, it was all going to turn to darkness. So take advantage of what I have while I have it. Um, With that in mind, I was looking uh, for ways to travel. And being a high school student, I didn't have any money. And I searched for uh, walk around the world or, or something along those lines. And I had found a couple other people who had walked around the world before. And for whatever reason, uh, that idea just stuck in my head. And then I wanted to do it right out of high school with like $1,000 in my bank account. It was entirely implausible. What if I had to work the whole way? Um, but my parents you know, made me go to college prudently. And so I went to college and I worked on getting sponsors while I was in college. I was working towards it the whole time. I worked with uh, the head of business there trying to get sponsors. Nothing connected, but it was always my primary focus. It was always what I was going to do. Uh, I had a map on my wall with all the, all the locations I wanted to hit pinned out. And it was just that was what I was going to do. There's no doubt about it. It was totally grown into me. And so I, when I got out of college, I worked putting in solar panels for a few years, and I had done that uh, since I was 17 uh, in the summers, and made good money and was able to pay off a lot of my loans, and I saved up a very solid chunk of money, and right before my 26th birthday, I decided uh, it's time to pull the cord and uh, take my chances. And so as I, uh, right before the 26th birthday, I started actually telling people because before this, I I was very reticent to tell anyone. I was very uh, I, I kept it myself because it's it's such a big dream and such a big goal that it seems absurd to talk about it before you actually do it. <laughs> sure. But once I um, once it was happening uh, a couple months out, and I had to start putting all the pieces together, uh, I was looking for uh, a cart to push or to pull. And initially, I, my plan was to pull this cart. And so I, I bought this little bike trailer and I went to get it, uh, the arm modified so I could hitch it to my belt or something and pull it. And when I went to this little maker space, I ended up meeting the owner and he's from the same town as I am, another guy named Tom. Um, he was really good friends with uh, my best friend's family. So we just hit it off and he's gregarious and outgoing in the way that I'm not. And so he ended up taking on like, uh, kind of my promoter for this first few months before I left and was able to get me a couple of sponsors and on the news and in, uh, in, in some newspapers. And uh, through that, I hooked up with Philadelphia Sign, who's my primary sponsor. And so Philadelphia Sign, the owner and CEO, is a great guy. And uh, Anne-Marie, so he sponsors me. So I get 
essentially just a paycheck every week to see this thing through. And he donates a dollar a mile into Emory's scholarship fund. Mm, so that's awesome, man. It's really, uh, this whole small town uh, really, has really gotten behind me. And uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how, how much impact uh, Emory's path, passing has had on everyone in my life. So one thing that I picked up there, Tom, that I think is really, really cool is that, you know, you're kind of quiet about it, but then when you did say, I'm doing this, I'm going now, then the door started opening up and, you know, all the way through college, you're looking for sponsors and people are like, oh yeah, whatever, it didn't happen. But as soon as you say, I am doing this now, I'm going out the door, then the sponsorship stepped up to the plate and things started working out for you. And the reason I highlight that is because so many of our guests encourage people just go for it quit waiting go try something you'll be amazed how the doors will open if you just do right instead of just dreaming about it go do it and it's cool the timing worked out that way for you yeah yeah i think it applies to pretty much everything in life but uh you know like if for example if you wanted to meet a girl uh you know you want to meet a nice girl and say you're in you know you're into rock climbing you should go to the gym, the rock climbing gym, and meet someone who's from the rock climbing gym. You don't go to a bar and meet a girl at the bar. Um, or <laughs> right. if you're a writer, you go to uh, you know writing conferences and you meet other writers, and then that world kind of starts connecting together. But it's the same with everything. You just gotta you gotta start doing it, and then uh, the connections build. Um, but I was I was very fortunate. I mean, I, I got the sponsor before I even took a step. So very very fortunate in that respect. Oh, that's that's awesome. So give us a little bit of a, an appreciation for the magnitude of what you're doing and what you've done so far. So if you can tell us just a brief sketch, where have you been in the last two years? How far have you traveled? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's been uh, just about 10,000 miles that I've walked over the past two years. And so I walked uh, during the first year from my house in Jersey over to Philly and then down the east coast of the U.S. to Georgia. And from Georgia, I walked over to uh, New Orleans, then over to Texas, and down into Mexico. Uh, I entered Mexico on the East Coast uh, through Reynosa, which is a slightly safer town, uh, border town. And then I walked down to Veracruz and crossed over the mountains, uh, and then entered Guatemala, um, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and then finished up my first year um, in Panama City. And then from Panama City, because of the swampish, um, gang-infested jungle that is the Darien Gap, which divides North and South America, I flew over that part and uh, landed in Bogota. And fortunately, I had two friends in Bogota who were international teachers, so I was able to take a, a month rest after a year of walking there. And then from Bogota, I walked over to Quito, Ecuador, and then down into the deserts of Peru and along the coast of Peru to Lima and down another couple months of desert to uh, Chile, to San Pedro de Atacama uh, in the Atacama Desert, and then over the Andes into Argentina, uh, across Argentina through uh, the hottest state during the hottest time of year. Yeah. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> and then uh, to uh, my cousin's house in Uruguay. Um, fortunately, I've, I randomly have cousins in Uruguay, so I made that my end point. 
for the South American leg. And then from Uruguay, uh, so I, I had my dog at this point, and so I left my dog with my cousins. And from uh, Montevideo, I flew down to uh, Tierra del Fuego or Ushuaia and uh, took a boat to Antarctica for uh, 10 days. And so, yeah, it's been three continents, uh, about 10,000 miles. And I guess uh, off the top of my head, I'd guess 12 countries so far. Yeah. Wow. Man, that's pretty impressive. Um, if you never did another step, that's already amazing. That's kind of mind-blowing what you've already done. Yeah. I, I, was, I think about it all the time, actually, especially recently, is um, coming back home now and trying to get uh, my dog Savannah's paperwork for Europe. And I'm, I'm telling people these stories, but... Uh, it'll never do justice to the actual experience. I have all these memories of these random little towns that I've passed through. And just thinking about every day on the road is just really, it's so simple just walking. But even for me, it's mind-blowing. Like, I can't believe <laughs> I walk down to Uruguay. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's something else. I, I wish that I had your memories. I've said on the show several times that I'd rather have memories than stuff, you know? And to me, when you make a memory, that's a treasure. And I just can't imagine all of the the images and the people and the flavors and the smells and the sights and the experiences that you've that you've managed to collect doing this. And, you know, I I don't wanna speak poorly against anybody who has to live in a cube. We get that, right? But when you sit in a cube all the time, you don't make those memories. All the days are the same and they blend together into kind of a mesh. You know, but yeah. wow, I can't imagine all of the memories and the sights and the sounds that you have now in your treasure chest of memories. That is cool. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's a very strange feeling because you can share them to a certain extent, but really they are just for you. You're the only one that experienced them. Um, and they're, you know, obviously the most valuable thing you could possess. And, you know, besides your time, if you own your time, uh, then, you know, you can make your memories. But yeah, it's, just even trying to share uh, these stories with my family or through friends, you know, you can re- retell the story and where you were and how the mountains rolled or the, the sand dunes uh, and the sand blowing across them. But it'll never, never do it justice to when you're there and you're experiencing, like you said, the sounds and the smells and and the people and and what you're feeling at the time, you know, some, sometimes I got into this town and it was after walking 25 miles or 30 miles. So you're not just, I'm not just taking a train to a place or flying into somewhere and uh, experiencing it with this kind of uh, American Western mindset and capturing it. You want to just hit the hot spots. I'm kind of out in the middle of nowhere and I've been out there for so long that I really was inundated in these places. And so uh, when I got to a new town, uh, it's from a very different perspective um, than, say, if I if I had driven there or if I had flown there. Absolutely. You know, I do a lot of backpacking, and that's one thing I love is that you connect all the dots when you're walking. You know? Exactly. And when I fly into some place and I land and I get off the plane, it, it's disorienting, you know, for me anyway. I'm like, oh, I don't even know where I really am. I know on the map, but I entered this steel tube. It's kind of like I was teleported for an hour or two, and now I'm somewhere completely different. And uh, what do you do with that? But if you can connect the dots, then somehow it just adds a lot of meaning and context, you know? 
Certainly, yeah, and and not to take away anything uh, from anyone who travels, uh, I think it's phenomenal if you were to go to Moscow or Madrid or anywhere in the world and get to know that place for a week. But I do think too, after walking, I never thought this before walking, but after walking for for so long, um, to travel uh, through like four destinations, you really sell the country you're visiting short, and you sell the culture short. And you you really you just get um, this one sort of occidental view on the country, which uh, is is less true than than it could be for you. Yeah, no doubt. You know, just for fun, the way that you said that is perfect. I, it made me think about Mexico, and the reason is that a lot of people from the U.S. go down to Mexico to go on vacation at a resort, and then they fly back home again. Mm-hmm. So they really don't see Mexico; they see a resort that happens to be in Mexico. Describe the real Mexico to us, just because Uh, a lot of our listeners probably know the resorts and that's it. Sure. Yeah. No, Mexico was phenomenal. Um, Since it was the first country uh, for me uh, walking through, uh, going from uh, McAllen, Texas, and then crossing the border was a really big shock. And uh, I had a hotel booked just six miles across the border for that first day because I knew it was going to be a shock. And I wanted some place to kind of rest and, and get myself together uh, once I started pushing further in. But even those first two hours in Reynosa, and Reynosa is a better border town, but it's still um, a little bit dangerous. And there's definitely um, a drug and, and gang presence. And I also didn't go in with um, the best eyes. I, I, I It was so starkly different from the U.S. And I, had, I hadn't built up a like Mexican eyes. I didn't know how to look at it through a Mexican perspective yet. So I can't really speak to Reynosa uh, truly or obviously as well as a local could. But I just rushed through those first two hours to get the hotel and it was very chaotic for me and adrenaline fueled. But after after about uh, probably five days, so maybe 125 miles in, um, things calmed down. But for those first 125 miles there's a very strong military and police presence and all the locals are telling me what are you doing walking around here like i don't even walk around here and make sure you have camp set up before sun goes down so i would stop five o'clock like two hours before sun went down every night and just make sure i was well hidden but then after the border things really opened up and a lot of stress left and um so I, I walked to uh, Ciudad Victoria, which is a, a state capital there, and a beautiful place. And and then from there, I went along the coast down to Veracruz. And the country is huge and beautiful, and the food is probably probably the best I've had on the road uh, consistently. Mm-hmm. There's every place I went. There's a great restaurant, and even if, if it's just, and most of them were just mom and pops places you know just uh the mom cooking out of her house and she happens to have a couple tables set up but they just know how to use spices and they have avocados and great meat and great rice and they just know how to cook Uh, so i ate really really well there and people were super friendly i didn't speak good spanish at that point uh, but they're very very much willing to to go along with me and and put up with uh, my stumbling and uh, just beautiful, massive, well-fed, delicious uh, country. And 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I I would go back there in a heartbeat. Can't recommend it enough. Uh, I would avoid the border, <laughs> um, but once you get inland, uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal place. You know, I've heard that from a lot of people that have done the real Mexico, right? That the people are wonderful and that the country is wonderful and it's a it's a wonderful place to visit. But it's kind of sad to say, but it's kind of the United States that pulls the the troubling stuff to the border, you know, with drug trafficking, with illegal immigration, and there's just a lot of, of that kind of stuff going on right on the border. But once you get past that... Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's certainly unfortunate. Uh, and it's, I mean, just economics, it makes sense that it's there, um, you know, something illegal. So it draws people who are willing to do illegal things there. Um, and, but yeah, once you get, once you get into the country, really tremendous fantastic place and um you know a lot of history too um a lot of ruins and it's it's a huge country there's a lot to see Mm. well that's so cool i'm jealous man i think it would be so much fun to be able to immerse yourself in the the world like you're doing you know going from country to country and culture to culture Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. Hey, have you dropped by our ASP member deals site yet? If not, what are you waiting for? There are some great discounts in there for everything adventure. Some podcasts ask you to donate through sites like Patreon or PayPal, but we wanted to provide you with something in return for your support of our show. So we launched the ASP member deals site for you to get great discounts from our partner vendors. It's easy and you can become a show sponsor for less than five bucks a month. Would you do me a favor and check it out? It's members.adventuresportspodcast.com. Thanks guys in advance and now on with the show. What was a big surprise for you? Something that you didn't expect? You know, in the last two years, you had to have some things that were surprising. There's a lot of things, but I think one of uh, the most surprising is just how normal everywhere is. Um, kind of, if you apply uh, a simile, it's kind of like when, you, when you're when you crossing the Andes or when you're going 
somewhere into the Altiplanos uh, in Bolivia, and it's 5,000 meters up. And when you drive up there, a lot of people get sick and they get lightheaded because they lose that oxygen. But when you're walking through there, it happens so slowly that it is just normal and, and your body adapts. And even walking from Bogota and being in South America, and a year ago or two years ago, before I was in South America, it seemed like the most wild, vast, like unconquerable place. And I just no, had no idea what to expect. But then uh, a year later, a couple months later, I'm, I'm in the deserts of Peru or I'm in Argentina and it's just day to day life and people just like everywhere else and they live a little bit differently. Their food is a little bit different. Um, the environment they live in is slightly different from where you grew up or what you know, but it's all just the same. And it's just people everywhere who, who want to work, make a little money, enough for food, and then go back and spend time with their family. And that's pretty universal everywhere. Yeah, I think it really is. And we see such horrible little sound bites and, and pictures from the media that like to show us the extremes of any place, right? Because they say that's what sells, who knows? But it's so cool that you can you can testify that the real world is is real people that are really a whole lot like us. Oh, 100%. 99.9% of people are good people. And I've been helped out so many times on the road. I've had so many people stop and give me water or Gatorade or food or bring me in. And people are, are very good and really, you know, just like just like you and me, you know, just want to live with their family and live a peaceful life and a prosperous life. Well, that's cool, man. Really, really cool. So speaking of people stopping to help, are you uh, trying to walk every step? Are you, do you take rides or is the goal just to travel the planet and it doesn't really matter? Are you trying to set some sort of uh, a standard or a record or something? Yeah, not going for any record. Um, this is just personal, uh, doing it for myself, not for any other reason. Uh, so I don't have any rules laid down as to what I need to follow, a timeline, if I can or cannot take a ride. Uh, but I really uh, avoid taking rides um, just because I think I would take away from it. And so mm. I'm walking such vast distances. What's the point of taking a car ride 20 miles or 100 miles when I may as well just walk in and I'll get more out of it? I'm just skipping over that place. And the point of the walk is is to not skip over the places. So if I take a ride, I think it would be very hollow and uh, not rewarding. Uh, so I, I avoid that as, as much as possible, though I did uh, have to take a cab over a bridge into Texas because uh, I just there's no way over it. There's too much traffic and no shoulder. And I did take a, a ride about 10 miles in Columbia after I got really heavily warned off this area. And it was the only time I was really like, people always, always, doesn't matter where you are, but everyone will always say, oh, the next town is, is dangerous. Be careful the next town. <laughs> right. Then you get to the next town and they say the exact same thing. Um, but this one spot in Columbia, I was really heavily warned off. Um, so I, I took a, about a 10 mile ride just to skip that length of a kind of deserted road where I would have been, uh, pretty exposed. and But other than that, yeah, I, I try and walk as, as much as possible. Cool. Yeah, that's neat. It keeps the dots connected, like we were saying, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, like I said, it's just taking a ride just kind of defeats the purpose. Okay, so tell us a story about one of your best days. You've got to have one that sticks out a little bit in your mind. Oh, man, I got a lot of best days, a lot of best days. Uh, every day out there is the best day. Um, uh, I don't know, what did you want? Did you want to hear from Central America or South America? I can go either way. What, mm, what's your let's go South America. All right, South America. So one of the best days, I would say, in South America – a uh, very simple day, um, just out in uh, out in the desert of Chile. I just left uh, Arica, which is this northern port city, and I was probably three days into the desert at that point, and there's very little there. And so when I'm walking, and it's this beautiful road. I'm following the Pan American at this point, so it's this very big road, and but there's very little traffic, so it's it's peaceful. And I'm just, I'm not listening to any music all day. I'm just enjoying the walking. And during the day, it's hot and I'm sweating, but it, it's nice. I'm, I'm, you know, very free. The landscape is open. And then when night falls, uh, I just turn off the road and walk into the desert a little bit and throw out my tarp, blow up my air mattress and lay out on the tarp. You know, no mosquitoes. There's no chance of rain. So just throw out the tarp and that's it. And then uh, as I'm laying there, and I had just walked up uh, for about three hours, I had walked up to this plateau. So I'm higher altitude, and the sun is setting, and then just, you know, a million stars come out. Mm. There's no light pollution at all. And I can actually see the Milky Way with my bare eye. And it's just, it's very simple. But just that going a very simple reward and and walking through the heat of the desert and and the peace of the desert and then to have uh, no problems at night. You know, I'm I'm out in the desert and I'm I'm not in the house. I'm not going to sleep in a bed and I don't have Wi-Fi, but I'm just totally free. And I have the stars over top of me and my dog Savannah is right there and she's sleeping beside me and uh, just really just. Just a, a great, simple, complete day of walking. And uh, I have other stories, obviously, of interacting with people and being given things. And, and that's great, too. But I really remember that day and just uh, just being rewarded with those stars at night. Mm, it sounds amazing to, to have that. But I have to ask, do you get lonely? I mean, you're out there by yourself. I'm sure that you've become pretty good at Spanish by now. But at first, you said you didn't even know the language well. Yeah, it was lonelier uh, in Central America when my Spanish wasn't as good. Uh, but also in Central America, I had a, a, a better chance of running across uh, another gringo and speaking English. So every once in a while, I'd get like a release valve. Um, <laughs> also, with modern technology, when I get into a town um, and have Wi-Fi, I can always Skype my parents or I can Skype a friend and talk to them. But really, when I'm on the road, I... I zero loneliness. It's just it's very very peaceful and and I, I'm kind of in between uh, introvert and extrovert naturally, so it works well for me. I enjoy being alone, and then when I can talk to someone, I enjoy that as well. Yeah, it was going to be my next question. If if you think that you are kind of wired that way to enjoy it, or if yeah, you think anybody yeah. could be like that, 
Um, you know, I'm not sure. I've never lived another life. I don't know how other people get their energy and how they see the world. Um, but for me, it's it, it fits my personality um, pretty well. It's always been, I've always wanted to just get away and not from anything in particular, but just to be out there and away somewhere on my own. And uh, it has nothing to do with, I, I love my friends, my family and the town I grew up in. But I've always had that uh, just that need to just be out there somewhere. Mm. So when I'm I some of the most joyous or content moments that I have is when I'm in the middle of nowhere and and having that thought of like picturing myself on the map and just seeing a little little pinprick surrounded by a lot of nothing. I love that sensation. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet that's that is pretty neat. So I don't want to get too philosophical here, but I know that doing what you're doing has had to change your perspective about the planet to a large degree. So how did how did you change in, in how you view things and how you believe about things? Um well a lot of a lot of ways. I mean I I was thinking about this the other day. I, I could never fully encapsulate how I've changed from two years ago to now, but I've changed tremendously. I've seen a lot of things in different cultures and just the act of walking every day is so meditative. Um, I remember the first four months walking through the U.S., uh, I had broken up with my girlfriend actually just like a couple of years before, but it was a very uh, serious relationship and we likely would have gotten married. So it was a tough decision. It was either her or the walk and I just couldn't leave the walk. So, um, we broke it off and, and that weighed on me for a long time. Uh, this kind of alternate life I could have been living. And it took about four months of walking and every day, just turning over uh, memories and thoughts and, and why I acted this way or why she acted this way and seeing every memory from a, from a different angle every day. And then got to a point where you had looked at, at your life in every possible configurable way. And so the problems just dissipate and you realize, you know, you're just who you are. And so I'm now, especially after two years, I'm very, very much at at peace with myself. Um, I'm very content. I've never been content. And maybe that's a part of growing up and just having another two years under my belt. But I also think the walking and how meditative and how you ruminate on your life really uh, has just affected me inwardly. And, mm. you know, most for the past few years, I've been living out of this cart and I don't have a tremendous amount of possessions. Everything I have fits in that little cart. I have my family at home and I have my friends and then I have my dog and and I have my cart. And knowing that I can live like that and live really happily and, and, you know, as happily as I've ever lived out of this little car with very few possessions, um, gives me confidence that no matter what I do, it's, I can be content with, with life as long as I'm content within myself. Um, so that is certainly the most profound fundamental change, uh, that I've had and it affects uh, it affects how I view everything. Obviously, it's it's pretty fundamental change. Uh, but as far as perhaps something that I've learned uh, externally through my walking, 
I would say the most like profound external lesson that I've learned is how much impact a government can have on a country. Oh, yeah. For example, going from, well, prime example, going from the U.S., from uh, McAllen, Texas, to Reynosa, Mexico. The people who are living in essentially the same town, you know, there's the same weather. uh, It's the same geological conditions in uh, McAllen make three times as more three times as much as the people in Reynosa and their their lifestyle is totally different you know people in Reynosa probably have a lower mortality rate and uh live in are living in concrete houses with the rebar sticking out whereas if you just cross the border suddenly the houses are three times as large and and uh people are buying things and another very drastic uh line was from Ecuador to Peru and Ecuador is a uh, pretty strongly socialistic, insular country, very strongly protected borders. Um, so things are expensive there, but the people live very well and they have very good benefits. And I'm crossing the border and there's a nice border station on the Ecuadorian side. And then you cross into Peru. And for the next 100 miles, people didn't have clean water. Wow. And that, there's no difference in, you know, they're getting the same storms and it's the same conditions the only difference is the government. And so just to cross the border like that, you, to walk through Ecuador, get to know Ecuador after a little bit, and then cross into Peru, and just, just like a, it gets cut off and Ecuador stops just at that, at that geopolitical line. And there people say that oh, people draw, you, you draw the line on the map and this geopolitical line doesn't mean anything, but it really does. When you cross from one country to another, Man, you see the you see the impact a, a government can make. Yeah, wow, that's that's insightful. That's something I want to go back to what you were saying about how you yourself had changed before the government, you know, boundary discussion. Mm-hmm. Just because very few people have the time and the energy to do that that tough inside work that you did, right? And yeah. our our whole society in the West is kind of geared around distractions. So we don't have to do that work. Sure. And I, a lot of people don't want to do that work. They don't like what they see when they look inside. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think one of um, one of the drawbacks or something that you don't realize it when it's happening. It happens so slowly. When you go for a walk, it's such a subtle thing, just, just thinking. You know, it doesn't have the bright blue light that your computer screen has, and it doesn't... Music isn't blasting into your ears. It's so below the surface and subtle that you don't notice it. But if you were to go for a walk every day for a year, you would be a very different person had you not gone for those walks. Hmm. And obviously, I, I can attest to that. And and it's not until after the fact. It's not until this year has added up or these four months have added up. And you look back and you go, wow, like I, I've really... I've come to terms with a lot of things and I've, uh, I, I've had time to ruminate on, on my life and it's just so subtle that it's easy to dismiss. Yeah. I, I totally get that. And then back to your boundary crossing experiences, people don't get that so much when they fly into a place either. They don't see that stark difference. That's the change that happens over just, you know, less than a mile. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. And Usually when you're flying into somewhere, it's it's more uh, geared towards tourism or and you're in the airport. So you have 
that slower transition to this, from this international airport into the city. So you, you don't get that stark line like you would at the border. Hmm. Well, you know what? I, I, Tom, I could talk to you all day, and we're going to run out of time way sooner than I want to on this one because I'm just so fascinated by all of your experiences. But a couple of highlights I want to make sure we hit. One is you adopted the dog, Savannah, you said in Texas, right? Yep. And a lot of people have pets, and they want to travel more, and they, they, they're starting to realize that sometimes it's hard to travel with a pet. So how have you solved some of those problems? Uh, well, fortunately, uh, through Central America, it's pretty easy. Uh, I don't know how it would be flying because you're going through an airport rather than uh, border control. That's You definitely have to have your paperwork in order if you're flying with your dog into the airport, um, probably just to get onto the flight. But through walking or overland, on a motorcycle, on a bicycle, uh, through Central America, weirdly enough, like the only country – that even asked for my paperwork was Honduras, which is one of the poorest, least regulated countries. But they asked for my paperwork and I had it. Um, and then in South America, just about every country asked for it except Peru. Peru just so and just walked in. Uh, but it's really just a matter of uh, how much energy you're willing to devote uh, to get uh, your dog or your animal across. And for me, you know, 99 out of 100 days, it's just me and Savannah, we're walking and don't have to think about any of that. But then when we do approach a border, you know, worst case scenario, okay, I have to devote three days or four days uh, to get her across, to get everything in order. Um, or as now, this is probably as bad as it's going to get right now, but getting her to the UK, really long process. And I'm going to mm-hmm. find out about that later tonight. Uh, but yeah, it's really just comes down to uh, how much energy you're willing to devote to bring your dog and um, if it's worth it. But for me, uh, when I'm walking, you know, we're together literally every minute of every single day. And um, I, yeah, I can't even, I can't imagine doing it without her now. You know, this is something we're doing together. Right. Well, that's, that's cool. I've heard that some countries want to quarantine a pet for a period of time to make sure that, you know, it doesn't get sick or something and you're not bringing some illness into the country. Have you run into those sorts of pressures? Yeah, that's, uh, that'll be with, more island countries, so Australia, the UK, Iceland. Like Iceland's very, very, very strict, uh, and I think it's a mandatory quarantine, irregardless if you have the paperwork or not. Uh, whereas with the UK, if you have, you can do all the paperwork and get the test run uh, at home, and then you skip the quarantine. But it's still essentially quarantine. I mean, you're at home getting the paperwork, and you have to wait those two months or three months to get her across and for the the test to go through. Mm. Um, But besides those, once you're inland, uh, it shouldn't be super difficult. It's probably just rabies vax and then uh, the local health certificate for the country you're entering. And that's, you get that in a day. Your paperwork's in order, she looks good, and that's that. Uh, It's just the islands are are the bigger problems because they can maintain their rabies-free status. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. 
Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. Well, before we go, I have to know about your future plans. Your your route continues. You have years more to walk. So what's next? Yeah, so next is uh, to the UK, and I'll be doing uh, Ireland, Scotland, uh, England, and then over to the mainland, uh, into France, Spain, and then over the Strait of Gibraltar, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, up Italy, over to Croatia, and then up towards the Ukraine, Poland, cross over into Russia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, a little bit of China, and from China over to uh, Australia, and then Australia to uh, the U.S. Uh, so it should be uh, about three more years, depending on if I find a, a nice town in France and, and decide to hang out there for a month or two. And uh, so it's dependent on a lot of things. But I think walking-wise, it'll probably be about – three years and uh yeah europe's next and going from south america which is really low density countries and uh, there's points in peru where i wouldn't see anyone for like four days uh and going to europe is is really welcome change i i'm i'm very excited for it and uh should should be uh, a lot of good photo opportunities too a lot of history there so really i'm very excited for that Speaking of photo opportunities, I'm glad you said that. Uh, you have an active Instagram account. I, I'm sure that all of our guests are be like, "Yeah, man, how do we see this?" <laughs> yeah, the Instagram, uh, the World Walk, uh, and yeah, I post everything. I post just about every day, and uh, that's been a fun thing too. Before I started this walk, I, I didn't have any social media, and I had basically never taken photos in my life. But as it's progressed and I want to share what I'm seeing with everyone else, um, I think a lot about the photography and I'm really getting into the photography. And it's it's a nice uh, it's a nice passion that I've developed for it. And um, and I enjoy sharing the uh, not just the destinations, not just the highlights, but everything in between. Yeah, that's fun. So, you know, you were saying earlier that it's almost impossible to tell someone what the experience was really like because they haven't been there, right? But at least you can take a, an instant in time and freeze frame it for us so we can see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's that's what I try and I try and do it that way. I try and do one post a day, and and so you see the in between stuff. Uh, you know, in between the spectacular Andes, you're going to get a lot of desert in Peru, and that has its own beauty to it. Uh, yeah, so. It's a good thing. Mm. Well, I hate to let you go before we at least cover some of the questions I know that our listeners have, because there are people out there who are going to be saying, man, I love the sound of this, but how do you pull it off? How expensive is it? What kind of a budget do you have to live on? Uh, so I've probably spent about, let's say, twelve to $13,000 a year. Uh, so not that insane, really. Uh, Walking is very cheap. And it just, especially through South America, I mean, in Colombia, I was actually able to get a hotel every night because the dollar is so strong. I was going to a hotel every night for like six or seven dollars. Um, so obviously it depends where you're traveling. 
but uh, walking is uh, a cheap form to do it. And, you know, traveled for a whole year on whatever $13,000 is not too bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. So a little over $1,000 a month has been what you've been able to make it on so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say that's, that's about right. Yeah. And <laughs> also, I mean, uh, I get shoes. I have a friend who works for Brooks. And so he's able to hook me up with shoes, which is a big expense cut out. Um, Google sent me a phone uh, to take pictures with. So that is another expense cut out. Um, so I've, I've had, I definitely had help along the way to make it easier. Um, but yeah, sure. probably I would say about 13,000. Well, that's fun. It's going to be more expensive when you're in Europe, but then other places yeah. you'll probably break even again. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. Um, what about your gear? You mentioned that you have this little trailer. Is that what it is that you pull or are you pushing a cart now? No, pushing a cart. Yeah. So I use a, a Thule, uh, Cougar it's called, and it's basically just a souped up baby carriage. And what that allows me to do is bring more stuff and not have it on my back. Mm. So if I was walking eight hours a day with a backpack, I would have less things and my back would just be destroyed. Uh, So really the cart for long-term walking, walking through the desert when I'm going four days without seeing a town, I have to be able to bring enough water and enough food to last me. And uh, with a backpack, I don't know how feasible that is. Uh, so yeah, I push the cart and, uh, it's a man pushing a baby carriage with his dog in Peru. <laughs> That's great. So how much gear do you have in there? Pound wise, do you think you're, you're pushing, I'm sure when you're going through the desert with water, that's, that's got to be fairly heavy. Yeah, man. I, I have no idea. Actually, I would guess mm, 50 pounds, 60 pounds, something like that. Um, with food. I, yeah, I'm really not sure. I pretty much, I have pretty bare minimal uh, gear, you know, sleeping bag, lightweight tents, uh, sleeping pad. I guess though the nice thing with the car is like I can I can bring a little bit heavier of a, of a tent because I'm not carrying it. I can bring a little bit thicker of a sleeping pad because I'm not carrying it. Right. So it does afford some luxuries. But as far as weight, man, I have no idea actually. Hmm. Well, that's cool. It sounds like that's a good way to do it. I, I hear what you're saying. I think that if a person had to carry a heavy pack every day for years straight, it would, it would it's probably not the right approach. Yeah, it's not not natural to have that 40 pounds tumor attached to your back. <laughs> yeah, good way to put it. Well, hey, man, I'm sure that you have some sort of a, a funny or an inspirational story for us to kind of close out the show. Share something with us. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. One of my, one of my favorite moments, uh, which was getting to, uh, Lake Atalan, Guatemala. And so entering Guatemala from Mexico is just straight up a mountain. And so for about three days, I'm walking, you know, 45 degree roads or 30 degree (laughs) roads. So brutal. And my destination is Lake Atalan, this beautiful high altitude uh, lake in the caldera of an old super volcano. And so I knew this is the spot I'm going to go. Uh, but I, I'd seen a couple of pictures. I hadn't really read anything about it. And so after uh, a week or so in Guatemala, I'm nearing Lake Atalan and I, I'm pushing up this hill and I see this clearing of the forest head and I, I kind of crest this hill and there's this view of Lake Atalan down below the little towns and there's three volcanoes dotting uh, the landscape around 
the lake, which is the lake is crystal blue. And I just, I screamed. I was, I was like, holy, like, scream. <laughs> the beauty of it was so unexpected and so insane. And uh, there's a national park right there. And these, like, three guards. And they were just, they started laughing. And they're looking at me. And I just kept yelling anyway. And it was <laughs> so insane. And they're saying, uh, who's the crazy man from the States? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't know how much work it took to get there. <laughs> right. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, that's so cool because it, it, again, illustrates how surprising life can be when you take the time to experience it like you are. Yeah. Um, you know, this don't mean to add on to uh, to add a bunch of extra time to your, the interview. Oh, but it's all good, man. Something I was talking about was uh, the idea of serendipity mm. and the idea of security. And when you have your house and you have your apartment and you have your job and then you get your girlfriend or your husband and every day is laid out and that's nice and secure. And it's a good thing too, because you can build on your knowledge and, and you can build your habits. So you get a little bit strong at the gym and you practice your coding a little more every night and you get a little better at coding. Whereas on the road, you can't really uh, build up these skills uh, as you can when you have your habits set and you have a space to, to work on things. But on the road, when you're traveling, you're left open to the serendipity and you're left open to stumbling across this, the hotel, this hotel I reached right before I got to Lake Adelan was one of the, the coolest hotels on the top of this mountain for $5. And the people were so friendly and I didn't know I was going to end up there, but you end up there and you have these conversations and, and you leave yourself up to these moments that, uh, you would never experience otherwise. And it's, you don't count the unknown. You don't factor the unknown into, uh, you know, what, I wonder what Peru is going to be like, or I wonder what Guatemala is going to be like. You have an idea in your head, but if you put yourself out there, all these fantastic unknown serendipitous moments happen and, and really make the trip what it is. Oh yeah. And had you stayed home, none of that would have happened. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So your website is theworldwalk.com and your Instagram account, again, theworldwalk. Tom, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. It's been really enjoyable enjoyable for me and insightful too. So thanks so much for that and for sharing your journey with us. And dude, let's have you back on after you've done Europe or something so you can kind of compare and contrast and share some more stories. It would be so cool. Yeah, it was great talking to you. I say the word, and uh, when I'm in a hotel, we'll we'll hook up again. All right, Tom. It, it again, thank you very much. And hey, for all of our listeners out there, you know, I always say get out there and have some fun. But man, think about getting out there for an extended time like this and experiencing life and experiencing all of those those changes that Tom's talking about. Man, inspirational. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Appreciate it. You bet. We'll catch you later. Coming up on Thursday's episode, Kurt talks with Dennis Bolachenko about hiking in the Italian Alps. Until the next episode, get out and have some fun.